It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I had a really good day yesterday. You know why? Got to sleep for an extra hour. Daylight savings time switchover. It was pretty awesome. Not so good in the spring when you lose an hour. And by the way, this whole daylight savings time debate uh, is a little insane. Everybody likes daylight savings time. Well, not everybody because there's been these scare pieces. Oh, my God. Daylight savings time is horrible. It destroys your body and turns you into a zombie. Look, I get the fact that it's hard on kids waiting for the school bus because it's dark. But it would be dark anyway. Maybe not as dark and depending on what time they have to leave and all that. But I would just go totally in favor of daylight savings time. The whole switchover thing is getting a little old. Um, but a lot of people think we should just stay on standard time and then we'd all need to be seeing therapists because it's so depressing when you're driving home from work and it's 4.30 in the afternoon and it's dark. All right, that debate will go on. So in the end, the Houston Astros winning the World Series was kind of anticlimactic. You know, the Phillies managed to win two games. They had that five-homer game. They were, that was the first of three games in Philadelphia. And then, boom, the Astros just shut the door. I mean, they're just a better team. They had a much better regular season record. And, you know, their pitching was phenomenal, including that shared no-hitter. I was reading a Tom Boswell column, famous baseball writer for Washington Post, saying, well, it was easier in the old days for pitchers to pitch complete games because not as many home runs were hit. And they could coast during certain at-bats. In any event, the thing I found most interesting about the World Series, and I know the Astros cheated in five years ago, and that will always be a stain, but these are mostly a different team and different management. In any event, Dusty Baker, the manager, became the oldest manager ever to win a World Series at the age of 73. I hadn't realized that. So he waited a long time, said, oh, it didn't matter, but in the end he gets his World Series ring. Uh, also interesting yesterday, or the other day, when uh, Saturday night, when Donald Trump was uh, doing a rally in Pennsylvania, as were Joe Biden and Barack Obama, um, he had something to say about the governor of Florida. He called him Ron DeSanctimonious. And, you know, David Axelrod, uh, former Obama White House aide, said, Trump has a diabolical genius for finding the weak spot in an opponent and coming up with a nickname that sticks. He couldn't help, as a political professional, admiring it. We'll, we'll see what uh, Mr. Sanctimonious has to say about that. All right, let's get down to story number one, which is tomorrow is the election. And after all of the drumbeat, it's coming, it's coming, the midterms, the stakes are so high, democracy is on the ballot. We finally have, and I've mentioned this in recent days, but now it's really... Uh, inescapable. The mainstream media, which had been in denial maybe two, three weeks ago, saying, yeah, of course, the Republicans are going to win the House. Uh, there's even the spin now, well, if, they, if, they, if the Democrats only lose 20 seats and they only need to lose five for 
Kevin McCarthy or somebody to become the next GOP speaker, uh, that will be a win because it's less than other midterm Democratic presidents have lost. The, the, the shellacking for Obama in 2010 and 2014, um, the losses, big losses for Donald Trump in 2018. But, you know, Biden doesn't have that many seats to lose because he came into office with a razor-thin majority, especially in the Senate. But so you finally now have the Washington Post yesterday. Republicans are poised to win the House. Yeah, you think? And there was this um, headline in the Washington Post earlier about Democrats being in a panic. Well, that's what's happening. That's why they're defending blue state seats. I mean, if I had told you a month ago that yesterday Joe Biden would be in New York, one of the bluest of blue states, trying to salvage a win for Governor Kathy Hochul, who's totally on the defensive now over crime, uh, and Congressman Lee Zeldin, who's been pounding away. You know, but, you know, every time there's a crime in New York City, it's not necessarily Kathy Hochul's fault. But she didn't really talk about it until recently. And, you know, on Media Buzz, uh, we had uh, Democratic strategist Kristen Hahn, and she said, you know, and this is so true, because there was a headline in the New York Times that said, Stoked by Republicans. Uh, voter fears of crime is is surging or something like that. And I was just so struck by that, stoked by Republicans, meaning it's not quite real. The Times didn't say that there was no crime. It said there was mixed trends. Okay. But whether it's stoked by Republicans or not, whether it's pushed by conservative media or not, it's about how people feel. And Kristen Hahn said, yeah, not only is it stupid for any political party to say, uh, you shouldn't feel that way. I'm telling you, you're wrong. It's, it's all made up. It's exaggerated. You really shouldn't feel that way. People feel how they're going to feel. What I said was, it's like the economy. You could say, well, you know, the economy's not really that bad. There's 3.5% unemployment. But if you're worried about losing your job, not to mention gas prices, grocery prices, then that's how you feel. You can't tell people not to feel that way. And Kristen Hahn said that she personally is scared about crime, living in Washington, D.C., and worried about the policies of the local mayor. So if she's, And she acknowledged that it was a mistake for Democrats not to engage on this issue until, you know, five minutes before the election. And I thought that was an interesting admission. Um, so when you try to figure it, so everybody says, okay, Republican House, the House is gone. Probably Nancy Pelosi will then step down and there's a shadow campaign to replace her and all that. So then you have the Senate. And it's increasingly likely, I think, that Republicans will take the Senate as well. Remember, it's a 50-50 Senate. All Mitch McConnell needs is one seat, a net gain of one. So you do the real clear politics average, you look at it. And in Nevada, I think the Democratic governor, Cortez Masto, 
is likely to lose to Adam Laxalt. And that would mean a Republican takeaway, a net gain of one for the Republicans. Then you have Pennsylvania, and that's why Trump, Biden, and Obama were all in Pennsylvania at rallies on Saturday. Now, if Dr. Oz wins because of, you know, mostly because of the disastrous debate and we talked about, you know, if you're going to say that Republicans only care about winning and they don't care about candidate quality or, you know, abortion allegations. I played the clip of the second abortion accuser going on Good Morning America, very emotionally testifying. Um, But if Dr. Oz wins, that's not a takeaway because it had been a Republican-held seat. So that's just a hold. So if I'm right about Nevada, a net gain of one, if John Fetterman can somehow pull it out, and there's no question in my mind that the media, certain anchors, Don Lemon, for example, we played some of that, are trying to rehabilitate him with these closed caption interviews and giving him a sort of a do-over, and he does much better. Guess what? If you're just having a somewhat sympathetic interview with somebody on CNN or MSNBC and you have the closed captioning, he can speak pretty well. It was the fast-paced debate with, you know, 15-second rebuttals and so forth that, you know, where he several times just had trouble making sense or keeping up. So let's say Federman pulls it out, and then that's a net gain for the Democrats. So it would remain tied. But then you, if you assume that Democratic Senator Mark Kelly hangs on in Arizona against Blake Masters, he may not, but he's got like a one or two point lead. Um, if he doesn't, the Republicans control the Senate because that's a takeaway. But then you have New Hampshire. And in New Hampshire, Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan, I think, may may well lose. Remember that she's running against this guy, Don Bolduc, who all the media said, ah, you know, this guy, I mean, he's so extreme, there's no way he can win. Well, that's virtually tied to, and I go by the real clear politics average because people say, oh, I don't believe this poll, I don't believe the Fox poll, I don't believe the CBS poll, whatever. But when you have the average of polls... That's the best snapshot we can get. Now, look, as I said on the air, it all depends on turnout. We don't know. In an off-year election, for example, Democrats do very, very well in the 18 to 29 group, but that's the group that's least committed to voting. You know, they don't, they just don't have that drive. So if you look at those states, I'd say a pickup of, one for the Republicans, which is all they need, will get them control of the Senate. And it's also possible they'll pick up another two seats because if the red wave is big enough, it will carry to victory um, a couple of these candidates who otherwise would not make it. I mean, that's the nature of an off-year election or just a wave election. You pull along, you have coattails. Um, We also talked on the show about the Paul Pelosi conspiracy theories and Will Kane and Geraldo Rivera really went at it. And people were saying, oh, Geraldo was talking. Oh, no, they were debating each other. 
Geraldo said what Will Kane said was baloney. Will said what kind, and they just, I let it go because they were having, I mean, at one point I jumped in and said, you know, give him a chance to answer. But they were having a really strong debate. They like and respect each other. I mean, they were joshing around once it was over. Uh, but it was a good debate. And Geraldo's view, and by the way, Geraldo, representing the liberal point of view, also criticized President Biden, saying it was ill-advised to give that democracy speech six days out, rather than a speech about, you know, inflation or crime or the economy, which is what people care about and happen to be issues that favor the Republicans. Ill-advised, and he shouldn't have done it. He also criticized his former friend, I guess, Donald Trump, for spreading doubt about what happened with Paul Pelosi. He said, this is a very odd thing is going on in that house. And he said, shame on Trump. Uh, and Will Cain came back and said, no, the shame here is that the people who, on the left, they are using the, you know, everybody agrees, this is a horrible, tragic attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, lucky to be alive, fractured skull, just got out of the hospital a couple of days ago, but he's got a long recovery ahead. Uh, but to smear Republicans as if they condone political violence, they invite political violence. Donald Trump created the climate for political violence. And Geraldo came back and said, look, these people, like Elon Musk, unfortunately, like Larry Elder, like Donald Trump Jr., who rushed to tweet things linking to or somehow endorsing or making fun of the idea that this guy, David DePap, who's confessed to everything, kidnapped Nancy, kneecapped Nancy. He also believed in an imaginary fairy, by the way, um, that they should apologize. They shouldn't just quietly delete the tweet. They should apologize, says Geraldo. So those are some of the things we did. Now, I want to turn to a New York Times story about Carrie Lake. Remember, she's another one of these, you know, um, Trump MAGA candidates who looks like she will probably win the governor's race in Arizona. Everybody in the media said, oh, she's way too extreme. Well, Katie Hobbs, her Democratic opponent, refusing to debate her. And the key thing is, you know, she's got these great television skills. She was an anchor in Phoenix for over 25 years. So the New York Times, and I think this is legitimate, goes back and talks to people from her Phoenix anchor days. One longtime former co-worker in the television news business recalled that Carrie Lake detested guns and practiced Buddhism. I'm not sure what that has to do with anything. Another former local news anchor, Stephanie Angelo, who was close friends, described Lake back then as a free spirit and liberal to the core. Her saying that abortion should be illegal, absolutely not, Angelo said. The Carrie I knew would never have said that, and she wouldn't have believed it either. Um, so it goes on to say, the piece in the Times, that while she's been campaigning against the press, as well as Katie Hobbs, and talking about fake news, and saying she'll become the media's worst nightmare if elected, it's a far cry from the person that many journalists, some of them on the record, remember. Um, seven of her former colleagues at the local Fox station in Phoenix 
uh, and two other former friends said she once expressed more, far more liberal views on subjects ranging from guns to drag queens to undocumented immigrants. And by the way, you don't have to take their word for it, she donated to Barack Obama's presidential campaign. So all of this has to do with, do you care? Should the voters of Arizona care that somebody once had different views? And I think, you know, Donald Trump himself was pro-choice before he was against it. He was somebody who curried favor with Democrats before he decided to run for the Republican nomination for president in 2016. And it's interesting, at her events, uh, she gets applause when she says, um, how many people out there don't consume any fake news media? Or how many of you really don't care what the big news media says? I, I just think people care about where you are today. And if you were somewhere else a few years ago, I think they just chalk it up to whatever. They're more interested in where you stand today. And, you know, journalists are like, well, you used to believe this and now you believe this. You know, but a lot of people, there's ordinary folks who vote and aren't political junkies. They, you know, they don't care. They just see it as an evolution, whether it's a deliberate repositioning or not. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Now, I'm going to do something interesting here. I'm going to read two different columns by people with very different views, well-known names, as a way of contrasting the views of what's happening as we go, the larger picture, as we go into Election Day tomorrow. So the first one is Andrew Sullivan on Substack. Andrew Sullivan was a lifelong conservative, but he became disillusioned and he was an Obama voter. He despises Trump. And here's what he writes on his Substack. I can't be the only Biden and Clinton and Obama voter who's feeling something like this after the past two years. There was no choice in 2020, given Trump. I understand that. If he runs again, we'll have no choice one more time. More than most, I'm aware of the profound threat to Democratic legitimacy that the election-denying GOP core now represents. That's why we need to send the Dems a message. Anyone not committed to the hard-left Biden agenda, which he's relentlessly pursued since taking office, should hear this, says Sullivan. In my view, he and his media mouthpieces have tragically enabled the far right over the past two years far more than they've hurt them. I hoped in 2020, after a clear but modest win, with gains for the GOP in the House and a fluke tie in the Senate, Biden would grasp a chance to capture the sane middle, isolating the far right. And after the horror of January 6th, the opportunity beckoned. But, says Andrew... Biden instantly threw it away. In return for centrist and moderate support, Biden effectively told us to get lost. He championed the entire far-left agenda, biggest expansion in government since LBJ, massive stimulus that fueled inflation, a second welfare stimulus was also planned, would have made inflation worse. That's the one that didn't get through. Record rates of mass migration at the border, no end in sight and a policy of almost no legal restrictions on abortion, with public funding as well. 
the replacement of biological sex with postmodern genders, the imposition of critical race, this is a long paragraph, folks, the imposition of critical race theory in high schools and critical queer theory in kindergarten, an attack on welfare reform, equity hiring across the federal government, plans to regulate media disinformation, fast-track sex changes for minors, next to no due process in college sex harassment proceedings, and on and on it went, says Andrew. Even the policy most popular with the center, the infrastructure bill, was instantly conditioned on an attempt to massively expand the welfare state. What on earth was in this agenda for anyone in the center? Doesn't surprise me, therefore, says Sullivan, that in this final pitch to voters this week, Biden barely mentioned his record. He didn't talk about inflation, the looming recession, crime, immigration, COVID, nothing that would motivate anyone beyond his own base. Um... For reasons I don't fully understand, I don't agree with everything in this column, but Biden did pretty much adopt the Bernie agenda, made the progressive wing very happy, not happy enough to satisfy Bernie Sanders, of course. Um, And, you know, as many Democrats admitted, as many liberal media people admitted that democracy is in danger, attacking Donald Trump and MAGA Republicans in that primetime speech was just tone deaf. It's not what people wanted to hear. Even those who agree with the substance of it, who are worried that democracy is in danger, thought it was the wrong tactical move for the president, including Geraldo, by the way, as I mentioned earlier. Okay, so Sullivan says, look, um, it was bait and switch and and condescension. The absolute assertions by uh, Biden administration, the media flunkies, the border is secure. COVID vaccines prevent infection. There's no CRT in high schools. The lab leak theory, Hunter Biden's corruption, were just disinformation. He goes on and on and on. The president can forgive student loans by fiat. A lot of people didn't like it. You get nothing out of that if you didn't go to college or paid off your loans. But there's also the executive overreach question. Finally, Biden never gives a hint that he respects his critics at all. He just go, come on, man. So he thinks if the Republicans win... It will be a clarion call to Democrats to move back to being the party of Obama, which by today's standards would be seen as not nearly liberal enough. But Sullivan says he fears they can't, and their media lackeys and propagandists will reinforce their worst instincts. Okay, story number three, Maureen Dowd at the New York Times. Completely different view. For instance... The future first female president, Carrie Lake, this is assuming she becomes Donald Trump's running mate and then succeeds or something, who lulls you into believing statements that seem to emanate from Lucifer. Lucifer. She's dangerous because, like Donald Trump, she has real skills from her years in TV. And she really believes this stuff, unlike Trump and Kevin McCarthy, who are faking it. How about Ron DeSantis? Governor of Florida is airing an ad that suggests he was literally anointed by God to fight Democrats. God Almighty, she says. That's some high-level endorsement. Much to our national shame, it looked like these over-the-top and way, way, way out of the mainstream Republicans and the formerly normie and now creepy Republicans who have bent the knee to the wackos out of political expediency are going to be running the House, maybe the Senate, and certainly some states, perhaps even those that Joe Biden won two years ago. Okay, this is basically their deplorables. Wackos, Lucifer. Uh, Kevin McCarthy will finally realize his goal, becoming Speaker, but when he speaks, it will be Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jim Jordan, and Lauren Boebert doing the spewing. It will be like the devil. There's that 
hellscape again, growling through Linda Blair and the Exorcist, except there'll be our heads spinning. Welcome to a rogues gallery of crazy. Clay Higgins, congressman, who's spouting conspiracy theories about Paul Pelosi. Paul Gosar, whose own family has begged Arizonans to eject him from Congress, will be persona grata in the new majority. They don't have a plan. Their only idea is to get in, make trouble for Biden, drag Hunter into the dock, start a bunch of stupid investigations, shut down the government, abandon Ukraine, and hold the debt limit hostage. So that is the opposite, or almost polar opposite point of view from Maury Dowd. By the way, NBC uh, had a segment that it later pulled back saying when officers arrived here at the Pelosi home a week ago, they initially didn't have any idea what was going on. They knew they had a high-priority call. What was unclear was what was happening inside. The 82-year-old Pelosi didn't immediately declare an emergency. He instead began walking several feet back into the foyer toward his assailant. And then, editors note, the piece should not have aired because it did not meet NBC standards. A source told Mediaite it was removed because the main source of the information was unreliable regarding the circumstances that police encountered. Maybe they should have figured that out before publishing it. All right, story four. Elon Musk, Twitter. We talked about this yesterday with uh, Charlie Gasparino, who basically said Elon Musk is not being a great businessman when it comes to this. I find it fascinating because Elon Musk has been tweeting up an absolute storm. And so, by the way, we talked about laying off half of Twitter. Charlie agreed that could be a problem if they run into any problem with well, you need experienced engineers to keep the place online during a uh, crisis, for example. The $8 a month fee for um, blue check verification status. Okay. People can pay it. People cannot pay it. Uh, look, Twitter is taking on a huge debt load thanks to Elon's deal. $13 billion in debt. It's losing money every day. Elon is desperate to find some revenue. But he's saying a lot of interesting things. He's saying, and he's responding to people, at least certain people. He's saying, I got to improve search on Twitter. He's saying, I want to be able, people to be able to post long-form video. I think you have to pay the fee for that. He always keeps saying, well, give, now give me $8. Um, and then, you know, only if you pay that money and then you would you would get some money you, as a content creator, he says. Um, he's throwing out all sorts of things. But then he had this tweet where he said, Twitter has had a massive drop in revenue due to activist groups pressuring advertisers, even though nothing has changed with content moderation. True. And we did everything we could to appease the activists. Extremely messed up. They're trying to destroy free speech in America. But, you know, he's really kind of abandoned the free speech thing because he says, and this is absolutely true, not only does he say that he has to convene this content moderation council, but um, he says that um, we haven't changed a thing. And we don't plan to be the same standards as before. Well, that's not what he said when he was sort of mounting his original campaign. And it should, all the people saying, oh, he's going to ruin it. Oh, I'm getting off. Oh, it's terrible. I don't even want to be associated with Elon Musk. They can do what they want. But he might figure out. He's throwing a lot of spaghetti at the wall. He now has changed his uh, online description to 
Twitter complaint hotline operator. And he says he's operating from hell, which it must seem like. Uh, So the Washington Post says about one third of his tweets uh, are engaging with users about change, their suggestions to change the platform. It's interesting to watch nonetheless. But then quotes uh, Matt Pierce, a verified LA Times reporter with 155,000 followers, saying, I'm not paying the eight bucks. Being verified doesn't matter to me because I've never understood the point of verification as it currently exists. But if suddenly the new point of verification is to help Twitter raise revenue, why should I help Twitter raise revenue? They're already making ad money off the tweets. I and everyone else have been writing for them for free. And that much is true. Now, by the way, uh, it was pretty heartless the way that folks were told about whether they had a job or not. Everyone was told to stay home on Friday. And so here's um, a member of the partnership team based in London, found out he'd been laid off when he checked his laptop and could not access the internal systems. That was sort of a pretty clear hint that you were gone. So grateful this is happening at 3 a.m., he said sarcastically. Really appreciate the thoughtfulness on the timing front, guys. And it's true. It is, it is on the one hand, you know, as I said, uh, other, I said to Martha McCallum on Friday, other companies, they go in, they have 10,000 people and nobody cares because it's a widget company. And so one day story. But Musk is doing this in the glare of a lot of media scrutiny because one, media are addicted to Twitter. I mean, literally addicted. And two, um, they don't want to pay this fee, I guess. They think they should just be automatically uh, verified. And they don't like, mainstream media do not like Elon Musk. But the very thing they were criticizing him for, that he was going to ruin the content moderation, he's, he says he's not. The people who should be pissed would be the, uh, should be the people who said, hey, you said we could say anything on here. Uh, not so much. And my favorite line, I think it was a New York Times story, was um, Musk has also laid off almost all of the communication staff, which had no comment <laughs> because there's nobody left to comment. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right. Um, related to this, Twitter, as well as Parler, which, of course, Kanye West wants to buy, censored him for using the N-word. The the billionaire rapper wrote, he was starting to think that the term anti-Semitic is a code of way of using, and then he he uses the N-word. And so he got censored. Parler didn't take it down. Twitter did, under Musk. All right, number five. The whole controversy with Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets. And stuff has happened here. Um, so it's unbelievable to me when you think about it, and there's some new news here, so stay tuned. This is a guy who agrees to donate $500,000 to fight hate speech. And he does this long, careful dance with the Anti-Defamation League. Uh, he takes responsibility and, you know, didn't mean to harm anybody, but he won't say he's sorry. So even after all of that sort of scripted, um, you know, Kyrie's going to 
make good for what he did with those horrible, you know, he endorsed a movie that, you know, basically has Holocaust denying and just about every other anti-Semitic trope you could think of. The Brooklyn Nets suspended him, saying he wouldn't apologize. He's suspended, at least for five games, for refusing to unequivocally say he has no anti-Semitic beliefs, nor acknowledge specific hateful material in the film. What happened after that? Kyrie Irving apologized. So he wouldn't do it, he wouldn't do it, and he wouldn't do it, and he wouldn't do it, and he gets suspended, and now he does it. How sincere do you think that apology is? Is anybody going to buy that? He could have done this before and seemed, I don't know, semi-sincere. Now he's just trying to salvage his job. Um, So uh, the team says there's going to have to be some remedial steps and measures. He's got to seek counseling designated by the team. After five games, we'll evaluate and see if this is the right opportunity to bring him back. Look, the Nets want to win some games. They'll probably find a way to bring him back. But here's what also has happened. Nike, which produces... Kyrie Irving's sneaker, and has since 2014, said it has suspended its relationship with him. Effective immediately, it will not launch the next version of his shoe. At Nike, we believe there is no place for hate speech, and we condemn any form of anti-Semitism. We're deeply saddened and disappointed by the situation. So this reminds me of uh, what Kanye West went through. Oh, Adidas is not going to drop me, and Adidas does. Oh, Nike's not going to drop me, and Nike does. And by the way, if you were from another planet and you came to Earth and you found out that for two of these, I guess you would call them black celebrities in the case of Ye, uh, he is, of course, you know, known around the world for his music, extremely popular music. He is also a billionaire. He has also proven himself to be repeatedly anti-Semitic and then throws out the actual N-word. And you looked at Kyrie Irving, who's a celebrity in the sports world, that the penalty for both of them would be, we're not going to make your sneakers anymore? (laughs) Wouldn't that seem like an awfully uh, shocking slap on the wrist? Like, that's the penalty these days? No sneakers for you? That's how weird this whole thing is. And with that, always appreciate your listening, folks. Hope you had a good weekend. Uh, Some of the Media Buzz segments will be online if you didn't have a chance to see them. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast. Back here tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.